Greetings and salutations, one and all. Jeffrey Wheatman here, and today's episode of Risk and Reels is going to be a fun one. I'm going to put my guest under a little bit of a spotlight here. Today, our guest is Keon Williams. So Keon's going to share a lot about his background. He's had a really, really cool journey. He's got a cool gig he does. But here's the pressure. Keon calls himself the funniest man in cybersecurity. Say hello, Keon, to all of our listeners out there. And make sure you say something funny. How's that for pressure? Oh, my goodness. Hello, listeners. And I'll, I'll give you backstory just to start. I have done official comedy training so that I am not boring. So credit to Jeff Justice and his comedy workshop in Atlanta. I have had the privilege of standing on stage at the punchline and cracking jokes. But the reason that I adopted the handle of funniest man in cybersecurity is not because I'm the funniest person that exists, but because I am the least boring security executive that's walking around. Least boring. All right. I, I like that. I'm, I'm actually okay with that, with that nomenclature. And I have to be honest with you. I actually happen to think, and maybe it's because I live in this industry. I actually happen to think cybersecurity people are generally pretty funny. I think you can't do these jobs if you don't have some kind of sense of humor. If nothing else, the job is extremely frustrating and not internalizing and taking everything too serious becomes very valuable just for mental health and for sanity and for being able to lead a team, especially if you're in a leadership position. Yeah. One of my former colleagues at my last job, my friend Paul Proctor, when I started with him, he said, everything you do needs to be ego-free. And I think that's also an important quality. If you dig your heels in and you entrench and say, no, 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 this is my idea and I am not budging, I don't think that works particularly well. If it adds any value to the mystique, I was cracking jokes at the altar when my wife and I got married, but I use comedy to diffuse stressful and frustrating situations. And marriage was neither. But for those who are married, you know, there's a lot that goes into the wedding ceremony. You spend all of these months building up to it. You have all this pressure. And my response was to crack a couple of jokes. So it happens in marriage. It happens in security. It happens in life. I, I think it's a fair title to adopt for a LinkedIn profile. I agree. And I am with you. I typically use humor to diffuse situations as well. And sometimes people who don't know me that well find it offensive that I can crack a joke when the world is crumbling around. But I don't know. My, my belief is if you can't laugh, life is much, much harder. So again, I'm, I'm super excited about having Keon on. Keon and I met on LinkedIn, I'm going to say a few months ago, and we chatted a couple of times and he's got a great background, which I'm going to have him share momentarily. But before we do that, as everyone knows, it is Risk and Reels. So we are going to start off with a movie question. So what movie have you seen that focuses on a character that steps into some situation, role, or opportunity that they were largely unprepared for. What did they learn? And most importantly, what did you learn? So one of my favorite movies ever is a good answer to this question. I love The Long Kiss Goodnight. It's a 1996 movie. It has Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. As the story goes, um, Gina is an assassin who is in a horrible car accident and has amnesia. She encounters Samuel L. Jackson. They're trying to discover all this information about her and who she is and what her background is. And as the story unfolds, poor Sam is involved in much more than he expected. You know, he's like, who is this lady? Why does she have all these skills? 
how is she just taking people out with a knife or with a gun or everything else that she was doing? And although she is really the focus of the movie, his character is the character that I use to answer the question because he definitely got more than he bargained for. He's just a regular private investigator. You know, by the time you get to the end of the movie, he's screaming, y'all can't kill me as he's jumping over snowy banks and trying to cross the border and everybody's trying to blow him up or shoot him. And it's a good story about resilience and carrying on and not giving up, having no idea the situation that he was going to be in when he started this adventure. I love that. And let's face it, Keon, most people, their whole life is about stepping into situations where they're not really ready, right? I, you know, I, I do a lot of mentorship and a, and a lot of coaching of younger cyber people because I think we need to, we need to do that. There's too much gatekeeping going on and not enough open arms and, and welcoming. But I think a lot of them feel underqualified. And I always share with them, you know, my, my deep secret is I've been underqualified for every job I've ever had, really, right? The key is, to figure out how to do the job before the people who hired you figure out you didn't know how to do the job that they hired you to do. And I think that's that's sort of the fun of, of what we pick, right, is everything is, is new. When I moved from networking into cybersecurity 25 or more years ago, that was the thing I loved was that everything was so, so new and different and there weren't answers. And I, and I love that. So, okay, long kiss, good night. If you think about it, Samuel Jackson, since that movie, has been involved in movies with, I don't know, $12 billion in box office, which is crazy if you, if you think about it. So my, my movie is going to be Dune. You know, I'm a big sci-fi guy. I grew up reading the Dune books. The original movie with Kyle MacLachlan a bunch of years ago came out. It was okay. I, I did like the fact that Sting was in there. The, the whole point of the movie is it, it focuses around this young boy who is the son of, of an aristocrat. And he thinks that's going to be his whole life. And weeks after the whole thing starts, he ends up essentially an orphan with this group of people he's never met before. And he right well, I don't want to ruin the movie, but he excels in something where he's literally learning something brand new every day. He's learning how to ride a worm. He's learning how to fight. He's learning how to, you know, put on a, a suit to be able to maintain his, his water. So, so that, that's my, my choice, probably not as um, intellectually satisfying as, as yours, but it's top of mind because part two is coming out pretty soon. So. Let's talk a little bit about what you do. I think you have a really, really interesting background. So, so maybe you can share with our listeners, Keon, a little bit about your journey, how you ended up where you are, and then I'll pull together the movie question and what I'd like to get out there today. Now, Jeffrey, if we go all the way back to the beginning, I am in cybersecurity in 2024 because of a car accident in 1996. So I used to unload tractor trailers for Target. And my boss allowed me to use his truck to go to downtown Atlanta to do something. But people who unload tractor trailers show up at work at 4.30 in the morning. So I was sleepy, ran through a red light, ripped the bumper off of this lady's car. And because I was in somebody else's car, I couldn't find the insurance card. Glove compartment was full of everything. So I showed her where I lived. I said, look, I've been working all summer, whatever it takes to fix your car. This is not my car. I'll pay cash for it. So I honored my commitment. And because I honored my commitment, she got me a job at the Georgia World Congress Center Authority, which includes Centennial Olympic Park, the Georgia Dome, 
And so you got these major facilities in the middle of downtown Atlanta. And she got me a job on the help desk. And I was really a cable rat to start with. So they were going from Vax VMS to Windows. And my job was to tie a cable to my belt and crawl through the rafters and pull new Ethernet cables to replace the Thinnet cables. And I was like Snow White in the Seven Dwarfs. I was whistling while I was working. I was happy to be have a job. It was better than being in McDonald's. Even back in 1996, the pay for crawling through the rafters with Cat 6 cable, or actually then it was probably Cat 5, but with the Ethernet cable tied to my belt, they paid me well. I had a good time. And then I ended up on the help desk. And then I found myself in the Army for eight years. And because of my Army experience, my last four years in the Army was being part of the U.S. Army Signal Command, which is all communications. And so when they interview you and you're having discussions, they say, oh, so you know how to run cables. So I ran field phones and ran copper wire through the field and did all these things. But between the Congress Center and my military service, I had the opportunity at the end of my military service to have a senior army sergeant call up one of his old soldiers and say, give Keon a job. And where they gave me a job was at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So I ended up working at the CDC for many, many years. It was a progressive growth model. Did you did you work with my old friend Tom Madden over at CDC? If you if you talk to Tom and say, hey, uh, I had a conversation with Keon. I think that Tom has fond memories of me because I stayed out of his way. I did everything that I could to help him. And uh, we had a good time. The, the cool thing about Tom and the story at the CDC is that my time at the CDC overlapping with my military time allowed me to participate in the original implementation of the Federal Information Security Management Act. So the CDC, I swear, was the guinea pig for NIST because a lot of the original documentation was CDC templates for how do you implement the risk management framework and all the practices and the system security plan. Uh, because of that, it's the reason that I've been able to develop a really good friendship with Ron Ross, who is the godfather of the NIST special publications. But all of that work through progressive growth allowed me from doing help desk work at the CDC to be an assistant administrator, to self-funding my security certifications, and then having an opportunity to work for Tom. And then the CDC is so large that the CISO for the CDC is really the head of internal audit, and then each center institute and office. At the time I was there, there were 13 of them. They all have a security lead. And so over time, I became the leader of security for one of the major divisions at the CDC that included critical infrastructure that had to be reported to Congress and the Office of Management and Budget in a timely manner. It allowed me to do thousands of system security plans and the amount of work that we did and the amount of process that we standardized became a very, very good experience that then when I left the CDC allowed me to be an author of the certified CISO body of knowledge that EC Council uses to accredit chief information security officers and other executives. And then that time at the CDC, just because of the volume of controls that I reviewed and the systems that I analyzed and the documentation that was produced, I now have the privilege of being the leader of a management consulting firm that helps companies large, medium, and small do the same type of work that we were doing at the CDC, 
just understanding risk, understanding exposure, building a program to reduce it to an acceptable level, and having a jolly good time. Because now that I'm no longer a CISO, I really can focus on what really needs to be done, give people the tools, and then I don't get thrown under the bus when they don't follow what I told them to do. So, so let me let me just share something that I, I remember hearing from Tom when I worked with him years ago, and and I, he said it a little tongue in cheek, but it's actually it was a really important lesson. He said, "Look, I'm fighting for budget with the people that buy light bulbs." Right? He said, "People are going to say they don't want to sit in the dark much, much quicker than they are about security." So, so it helped me learn more about how to effectively communicate the value. Right? Because if you say, "No, I need a million dollars," you're going to have to sit in the dark, but I'm going to secure stuff. Nobody's really interested in that. And it sounds like you were there, sort of through that whole growth phase. The thing that I would say about Tom is that if you have the option between a stick and a carrot. He wielded a stick very effectively, but never had to beat anybody with a stick. And so his objective was not to put a carrot out there and say, hey, guys, come on. You know, I hope that you do this or please do this. But he was very effective at saying this must be done because it is a federal law that's forcing us not just to do security, but to change culture. You know, the CDC office in Atlanta is the result of doing polio research way back in the day, because back in the day, Atlanta was really a forest and was very tropical. And we had a lot of um, polio and malaria were two of the things that the CDC originally researched, which is why the CDC is in Atlanta instead of Washington, D.C. But you have an organization that goes that far back that never cared about security. I don't think it's fair to say they didn't care, but security was not an organizational priority. Delivery of healthcare services doing good public health was the priority for decades. And then you have Tom come along and because of an act that was passed in 2002, now Tom has to take a decades old organization and say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, you've never done this before, but Congress said you're gonna do it now, let's go get it done. That's an interesting cultural shift. And I think that's actually a great transition into uh, talking about some of the stuff you're working on with your management consulting gig now, right? Because you're you're working with CISOs and you're working with other IT executives and their business stakeholders to have better conversations. So talk a little bit about what you're sort of doing with these folks day to day, week to week, month to month. And, and then we can talk about some lessons maybe that we can learn from that experience. If, if I give free training to everybody that's listening to the podcast, you always start security with an assessment. One of the things that I've seen, because I approach this academically and I do it in practice, not just theoretically, is that a lot of people will say, I was hired as the CISO and now I'm going to come in and implement the Center for Internet Security, Critical Security Controls. So you have these hard charging, very smart people that go into the organization and start implementing things, but they never talk to the people who are affected by what they're implementing. Because if I do everything that CIS says or for larger programs, if I do everything that NIST requires and the risk management framework, or even for my own organization, we have ISO 27000 certification. Getting that certification was not easy and getting that certification impacted the entire organization. I have encountered a lot of senior security leaders who are laser focused on implementing the program, never have a conversation about the impact of that program on the people who are going to benefit from it or suffer from the program being there. And so it becomes very valuable to do an assessment. It's the primary work 
that my team and I do with most of our customers so that we can come to an understanding about what are the requirements? What is the driver for those requirements? Is it a contract? Is it a regulatory requirement? Is it something that the CEO said because he went to a NASDAQ meeting and NASDAQ said all CEOs should do X. And now the CEO comes back and says, hey, company, we're going to do this. Understanding the root of the drivers for anything that's in the security program is as important as implementing the program itself. Because if you don't know why you're doing it, how are you going to measure and communicate whether or not you're successful? I could go in and implement any security program from any framework, but where I see a lot of disconnect is that the non-technical business stakeholders who are spending money for the program to be implemented can't explain why are we spending this money. And then it creates a situation where the standard of success is never having a security incident. And I would argue that that's a poor standard of success. The better standard of success would be, I've done an assessment. I understand my risk. These are the acceptable boundaries of risk taking. This is the budget that's required to reduce our risk to an acceptable level. And then when something happens, we have the appropriate people, process, and technology to respond quickly and restore operations with the least amount of impact on critical services. But if I just jump in and implement a program, I can't answer all those questions. And now the business doesn't care. And then we have one security incident in a large complex company and the CISO was fired because people thought that the CISO's job was to make sure that we never have an incident. Right. So I'm, I'm, I always sort of share this, right? If you, if you go to your management and say, hey, I need $2 million for security. And they say, well, what if we don't give you the $2 million? And if your answer is, well, we think something real bad might happen, they're not going to give you the $2 million because if sales ask for $2 million and the business says, well, what am I going to get? I'm going to get you $2.5 million worth of revenue. Everybody has an answer and the security teams just have not. And the frustrating thing, Keon, is it's getting better, but man, is it moving slow. I, I think it's a communication issue. You know, I, I used to be a college professor along this history of all the crazy, interesting things that I've done. So I taught undergraduate students at the University of Phoenix ages ago. I taught graduate students at Georgia State in the MBA program. And I've done academic research for all the centers of excellence that the NSA certifies. One program out of all of the programs the NSA certifies as cybersecurity center of excellence has two business classes, everything else is technical. You know, I enrolled in James Madison University to do a master's degree in cybersecurity. And my first two classes were first order logic and reverse malware analysis. And then I looked at the rest of the program and I said, I'm not a programmer. This is interesting, but this level of technical detail is not going to serve me because I'm really not that technical of a person. And so I did two semesters at James Madison, which is a fabulous school, but their program didn't teach me any business class in the entire curriculum for a graduate level class for cybersecurity. And the issue is that most security programs do this. And so you have very smart technical people who have no ability to speak to business people unless they have fabulous coaching or they don't have the contextual awareness of what business people care about because they haven't taken a business class. So one of the greatest blessings in my life is that when I was at the CDC, 
they assigned me a non-technical business person outside of my chain of command as my executive mentor. And every time I brought him something before I presented it to my boss, he said, Keon, I don't know what you're talking about. I feel like I'm reading a foreign language, even though you're giving this to me in English. And what are you asking me for? And and so every time for it took almost six months for the light bulb to go off in my head. But every time I would present him something, I would spend hours and hours and hours putting together a strategy plan or putting together some kind of report or some information that was meant to cause the non-technical business leaders in my part of the CDC to make decisions or to understand why I was doing something to them. And it didn't make sense because I was speaking basically lead speak, if you really want to get specific. And and they spoke MBA English, and I'm trying to present them something in lead speak. And there was just a huge disconnect. And so it was uh, Cam Williams and those conversations that inspired me to get a master's in business administration. And the MBA was valuable for so many reasons, but relevant to this conversation, it changed the way that I put things in a context that drove business decisions, because then I had to take all the same classes as the people that I'm talking to, because most non-technical business people have an MBA if they had a graduate degree, or even their undergraduate degree has much more business content about finance and accounting and trade-offs and impacts and derivatives and all these other things that influence how a business runs beyond just having computer systems with blinking lights that make the magic happen. And so I, I have an MBA as well, and my undergrad degree is also in economics. And people go like, why? But let me tell you, I talk about the concepts that I learned in economics around modeling all the time, right? Because you look at a model, the more detailed the model is, the harder it is to use, and the easier it is, the less accurate it comes. So how do you find that fine line? And then to your point, we had a, an executive retreat a few months ago, and I talked about some of the trends that we're seeing in our area, which is third-party risk. And one of my sales managers came up and he said, thanks for dumbing that down. And I said, I, I didn't dumb it down. I met you where you are, right? What would be the point of me telling you that you know 97% of software vulnerabilities are compromising three vulnerabilities? Like, nobody cares. I brought you what you need to be able to do to do your job. And I think that's so important. And, and I, I've shared this story before. Uh, one of my former colleagues uh, at Gartner, he and I sat down over cocktails and, and he looked at me and he said, I got to tell you, he says, I work with CIOs in Fortune 500. He said, the vast majority of them don't know how to read their own general ledger. So in other words, they don't know how their companies make money. And if you don't know how your company makes money, there's no way you're actually securing. And I'm actually going to throw a statement out there based on this. And I want to get your thoughts. So there's a lot of discussion on LinkedIn about what makes a good CISO. And I think there are some extremes, right? People say it's a business job. Some people say it's a technical job. I think it's a hybrid, but some of them will come out and say, my job is to protect the organization from itself. My job is to protect the data. What are your thoughts on those kinds of statements and, and why are they bad? Well, I think what makes a good CISO varies wildly based on the organization. Like my primary job in the army was nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. And because that was my military occupational specialty, my real job is the NBC NCO, which is the title that I end up with as a sergeant who has to deal with all of that stuff. 
is not to inventory chemicals that will spontaneously combust if you get them too close together, but is to manage the risk for the organization related to the chemicals that are under my care. And, and so if we take what I did in the Army as an NBC specialist, nobody cared about what I did and how I did it. What they cared about was the result. And so a CISO in a bank is going to reduce banking risk and satisfy all the requirements for the OCC and for FINRA and for, and for FFIEC within the context of that industry, given the tools that are available to produce outcomes that are desirable for a bank. But I've actually seen banking CISOs who are not successful as CISOs in healthcare because the banking CISO is still thinking about banking as an industry, but the requirements for a chief information security officer in healthcare are very different because there's a difference between the impact of a breach of a financial system and the regulatory outcomes that are produced from that versus the industrial control systems in a hospital that provide oxygen to people who are on life support. And now the ICS is damaged and people are dying because you didn't have good controls for industrial control systems. Two completely different things. Or I've done work in oil and gas. You know what's really interesting about compressed liquid natural gas is that if it doesn't operate within certain parameters based on physics, you are going to have spontaneous combustion of a lot of things. And so as the CISO in an organization that's focused on um, LNG, my priorities are different than a bank and my priorities are different than financial services. And so one of the things that I do because I'm a consultant now, not a full-time CISO for a specific industry is I have to understand the primary concern for every industry, but I would encourage every CISO if they want to be effective, that they need to know everything that there is to know about their industry. If it's critical infrastructure, the cybersecurity infrastructure and security agency lays out the concerns, the risks, the requirements for 16 critical infrastructure sectors. You know, if I'm doing software as a service, the Cloud Security Alliance has documented enough information in their cloud controls matrix and in their star registry and the major cloud service providers have documented all kinds of things about shared responsibility matrices. If I'm the CISO in a software as a service company, I should know all of those things. And so my long answer to your short question is that it requires specialization that's relevant and applicable to the organization that you're serving and the industry that that organization operates in to really define what am I doing and why is it valuable and how does it produce outcomes that are desirable for the organization that I'm serving? One of the things that I have been suggesting is if, I mean, you and I remember, because I think we're probably around the same age, some of our listeners may not, but back in the day, if you went into a management role at a big company, you did a year rotation where you sat with every department. I think we need to do that with the security people. They need to understand at least at least enough to have a conversation. And right now, I just I don't think that exists in most organizations. And and to your point, every industry is different, but I also believe that the concepts around risk management are the same. The money you throw at the problem and the actual financial impact and those kind of things vary, but the actual process around managing technology and cyber risk I think it, the process is the same, right? You said it starts with an assessment and then you prioritize and you evaluate and you treat and then lather, rinse and repeat. But 
I do think you, you hit on something that's so important, which is if you can't have a conversation with somebody about what they want and what they care about, we're going to, we're always going to be fighting that uphill battle. I don't want to say we're doomed to fail because I think that's too negative, but I do think we need to think more about what the other person is, is thinking. So let me just kind of tell you something I shared. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So I used to do a lot of workshops and one of the mandatory things I did in every workshop was I changed everybody's job, right? So the CISO was the CTO, the CTO was the CEO, et cetera. And it didn't always get us where we wanted, but always we would get, oh, I never thought about that before. What are your thoughts on on that? Is that something you've seen success with? Sort of forcing people to wear other people's shoes as it were. One of the really important things if we're talking about leadership, and a CISO is a leader, is empathy and understanding of the people who are your peers and the people who are affected by your decisions. Uh, if we go back to the military, uh, the military was not focused on empathy, but there is a similar concept whereby every soldier from the senior person in the unit all the way down to the lowest ranking person has to know the mission, the objective, and how we're going to get there. And so if we take that military concept and then we put it in a business context, the only way for every soldier to understand the mission and its execution down to the lowest ranking person is for people to adopt, assume, or emulate the responsibilities of other people. So I think it was fabulous that you had people do the role reversals because I have more empathy and understanding of what the CTO is going through if I have to take on their responsibilities, even in a hypothetical situation. One of the things that ends up happening when you do uh, business analysis is the thing that causes people to get their bonus becomes their priority. And the chief technology officer, the chief information officer, the chief security officer, and all the other people in the C-suite get paid for different reasons. And so again, going back to your exercise, if we got so granular that we said your bonus depends on uptime above every other consideration that would take place, well, then the, that's going to drive different decisions because all I care about is the systems being up. I don't care about the amount of risk, even though there's a relationship between cybersecurity risk and system outage. Human behavior is going to cause me to be laser focused on. I've got to keep these systems up because I have an SLA. And so if the CISO takes on that responsibility, there's going to be more consideration and the opportunity to frame Mr. or Mrs. CIO. This thing that I'm asking you to do or support of the budget that I'm requesting is going to contribute to your objective for uptime. People will behave in the manner that incense them the most. If you tell them you need to hit this or you don't get your bonus, that's all they're going to care about. And, and the one thing, and I'm sure you've seen this throughout your career, with, with the push to the cloud and all this sort of shared infrastructure and shared processing and storage, et cetera, the way we look at those problems is is different. I always tell people that that security executives in a cloud first environment need to understand how to manage contracts, which is not something we ever had them do before. So you know that stuff I think is is super super critical. So we are closing on the end of our time, and I know you are super busy. So I want to just recap some of the things that you said. So first of all, I love the fact that your car accident is what got you into cyber. I always tell people, I was in retail before I went into technology. And my, my driver was, I realized I got home every night and I was yelling at my girlfriend because of stuff she had nothing to do with. And I did not like working in retail. 
So that, that was sort of my impetus. You know, we talked about the budget thing. I appreciate and applaud your, your concept around start with an assessment. And I just want to clarify that because I think we have a tendency to think that assessments are purely technical, but I'm assuming you're talking not just about technical assessments, right? It's process assessments, it's policy assessments, right? So the yeah, wider- Assess everything. I, I did an assessment as a pre-IPO activity for a SaaS company once, and I talked to 67 business executives, and only five of those people were technical. I talked to accounting, I talked to the help desk, I talked to, and actually in accounting, there were seven different people. So we had the CFO, the controller, accounts payable, accounts receivable, we talked to everybody under the sun who was a manager or above in that organizational structure to understand how the company worked. And based on our understanding about how the company worked, we were able to say, these are your risk areas based on how you operate, reconciled with the regulatory requirements you're going to face once you do the IPO. And that actually leads me to my next bullet, which was, hey, here's an idea. Let's talk to people. Right. Let's go talk to our stakeholders instead of shoving things on them, which is historically what we have done. I used to ask people all the time, how many of you have a password policy? And and everybody says, yeah. And I say, well, how many of you have actually explained why you have a password policy? And nobody has. So what you're seeing then is the security people are viewed as the people who say, no, stop, don't. And the business people don't really understand And if we don't help them understand, here's why we need passwords. I think we are doomed to fail. Another thing you mentioned, which I have seen as well, is that these cyber degree programs don't have business classes in them. I agree with you. I I think it should actually be an MBA in technology risk management, I think is really where we need to get to. When I did my MBA, I had to take economics classes. I had to take business classes. I I had to learn how to do all these things which I still pick and choose kind of when I'm, when I'm having my, my conversations. And then the final thought, and this may be the most important, is you need to understand your business model, your business architecture, your business discipline, the vertical you're in, and understand what terms work. Like we talk to a lot of people in the federal government. Well, if you go to them and talk about third-party risk management, they don't know what you're talking about. For them, it's supply chain risk management. It's the same. But you need to understand those terms. So so great stuff, Keon. Any final last thoughts or maybe you want to tell us a joke before we send it? I know it's a lot of pressure, right? Tell me the funniest joke you know. So my final thought is related to comedy, but it's not a joke. Um, one of the benefits of doing formal training in stand-up comedy is understanding how jokes are put together. And if you look at any HBO special or Netflix special, it's like 45 minutes or an hour, an hour and a half. What really happened behind the scenes was that that comic did a five minute bit and then another five minute bit and then figured out over time what worked and what didn't. And then everything that works is wrapped together. But the best thing that I got from going to formal comedy training and then having to prove it and make people in in an audience laugh was that you have a concept and a premise and then you have a punchline that's at the end, but everything is leading to the punchline. That same framework is what I do for keynote presentations, thinking about my audience and what they care about, and then telling them a great story and then getting to a point that resonates with them. I think every security leader can take that fundamental framework of comedy, not focusing on being funny, but focusing on connecting with the audience. You know, if I were to do a stand up um, bit at the punchline at some point in the future, 
it's my responsibility to understand the difference between the audience at the punchline versus the audience at a comedy club in LA versus an audience at a comedy club in New York, because all those audiences are different based on the region and their expectations. But I need to go a step further and know, am I talking to a room full of parents? Because all of my jokes are about marriage and family because I'm married and I have five children. I haven't been single in 30 years. And so having not been single in 30 years, the jokes that I would crack about being a family person and kids waking up in the morning and my son throwing up in my mouth because I'm throwing them up in the air and not paying attention. Parents are going to get it, but single people with no children aren't going to get it. But that same concept applies. If I'm a security leader talking to an audience, I have to understand what's driving them and what they care about so that I tell them a story that resonates and I get to a point that lands and has an impact. And I'm not trying to make them laugh in a business case, but I do want them to respond positively to the message that I'm saying, whether it's I need more budget or I need more headcount. There's always a shortage of people on the security team, but whatever you need, it has to land because whatever decision that's made for the benefit of the security program is going to take away from some other initiative within the organization. So if there's always a trade-off, you have to make sure that what you're arguing or advocating for stands out in a meaningful way to the audience that you're talking to. And, And that's really the benefit that I get from the comedy training when I apply it in the work that I'm doing. So I think that's a, a great closing thought. So uh, a couple of things before I send Keon on his merry way. So first, you should follow Keon on LinkedIn. He posts some really, really good stuff. In addition to being funny, he is he is uh, wise and learned. And I don't mean old by that because that is the perception sometimes when we say wise and learned. But Keon, Keon's got some great stuff out there. So definitely check that out. Second thing, make sure you subscribe to Risk and Reels. We have some great guests coming up. None of them, of course, are going to be as funny as Keon, but we do have some great guests coming up, so we definitely want you to check that out. So with that, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.